platinum as a metal is said to be 30 times more rare than that of gold. Hence the use of it when we speak of the Queen's Jubilee as our reigning monarch. It's a rare milestone that she has reached as reigning over the United Kingdom, the realms, and the Commonwealth for these 70 years. That has only been possible, humanly speaking, because she suddenly was thrust into the limelight at the age of 25 when she was to ascend the throne as queen after her father, King George VI, died. Her coronation service happened a year later in 1953 on the 2nd of June. But as these celebrations take place, particularly uh, coming to that date at the end of the week, it does give us opportunity to consider the British throne and what it means and how God has blessed and been pleased to bless our monarch and its citizens because of that throne. Now that always has not always been the case. The throne of this land wasn't always Protestant. It wasn't always based on the principles of freedom. Freedom of the home, freedom of the press, freedom of speech. Individual freedom has come when the priest has lost his grip on the home life of the people and the shadow of priestcraft over the country has passed away. I want you just to consider over the course of the last 70 years while the Protestant throne of Britain has survived. Every other one throughout Europe has been crushed because it wasn't Protestant. But why that is the case, we've got to roll back the years. And we've got to come to what is known as the Bill of Rights and the Act of Settlement. Before they came into being, James II came to the throne after the death of Charles II in February 1685. Now, although James was a Roman Catholic, and although he said he would not disrupt the good government of the nation, it soon proved to be empty words, because three days after his coronation, he declared openly his allegiance by attending the Mass. What followed was a getting rid of those members of Parliament who voted against his request. There was a strengthening of Catholicism with a desire to Romanize Britain again to the extent that the Pope at that time had to convey a message to him, a message of caution to move more slowly. It's not surprising then that Britain sought deliverance. And it came in the form of the arrival of William of Orange in November 1688. Indeed, how significant. And when the people of the country were celebrating the gunpowder plot being discovered, the prince was landing in Turbay to deliver the people again once from, again from Popery. The rule by a Roman Catholic monarch has proved to be a dangerous experiment in constitutional history. And in answer to the request from Protestant leaders, the arrival of William signaled the end of James. It should be noted that the history books, by the way, say this. That when William arrived at Torbay, he refused to disembark his ship at Torbay on the Lord's Day. 
preferring to wait until the dawning of Monday the 5th of November because he, like the reformers before him, desired to bring glory to God through his actions. And he believed that Sunday was a special day set aside by the Father even in honor of his Son. And so he kept the Lord's day. He stayed in the boat until the next morning. He had arrived with a great Dutch fleet flying from the mast and his frigate was a banner bearing the motto the liberties of England and the Protestant religion I will maintain. The supporters of William knew their enemy. They knew what was under threat. They knew that if Protestantism survived, then their freedom and their deliverance was secure. We are well familiar, of course, with the battles that ensued, especially in this part of the United Kingdom. Largely, he was unhindered, and a year later, both William and Mary were crowned joint sovereigns in Westminster Abbey. Unconstitutional change was inevitable. What was drawn up flowed directly from the Protestant religion. The Reformation declared there should be no priest between the sinner and the Savior. It declared that there should be no people between the sovereign and its, his subjects or her subjects. And that was Williamite principles. And they were what he avowed to maintain. And men and women, on looking at this, the Protestant throne, I want us to take as our text the words of verse 3 of Psalm 11, where it says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? These words are penned, of course, by a king himself. King David, who reigned for 40 years. That's saying, look, that's something of this. I want you to notice the foundations, first of all. It needs not to be labored upon, but the foundations are the fundamental part of any structure. The foundation is wrong. The edifice will be wrong. You can apply that to a physical building. You can apply that to bills or laws or whatever you care to mention. And David understood that when he reigned within his own kingdom, the foundation had to be right. And the opening words, the opening verse of this psalm states where his trust was. He says, in the Lord put I my trust. That meant he was trusting instead of fleeing. That is what is central to the British throne as noted by the Bill of Rights and this Act of Settlement that I've made reference to already that was drawn up at that time following William's arrival. From the moment that William stepped on the shores of this kingdom, he was motivated to consolidate Protestantism in Europe and the English throne would be his power base. When he was greeted with cheering crowds as he made his way into London, he doffed his hat and he said, Thank you, good people. I am come to secure the Protestant religion and to free you from popery. There were dissenting ministers who had suffered under the previous kings. It's worthy of note to what he said to them. And I quote, he said, My great 
end was the preservation of the Protestant religion and with the Almighty's assistance and permission so to defend and support the same as may give it strength and reputation throughout the world sufficient to preserve it from the insults and oppression of its most implacable enemies. And that more immediately in these kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland. And I will use my utmost endeavors so to settle and cement all different persuasions of Protestants in such a bond of love and community as may contribute to the lasting security and enjoyment of spirituals and temporals to all sincere professors of that holy religion. His dependence was upon God. What he vowed to maintain was the Protestantism, that is, the Bible alone, Christ alone, faith alone. That's a summary of true Protestantism. Sad today that many who take the name know nothing about it. And those fundamental truths were not only noted in William's reign, but our throne has a succession of worthy occupants from the days of Victoria down to our present Queen Elizabeth II. Our Queen's father, George VI, for example, spent himself for the people to the very end. And they were repeated expressions both from him and of the Queen of their dependence that was upon God and of the value that they attach to the reading of the Bible and to prayer. Our own monarch, you will know, has, in many of her broadcasts, made mention of God and of the Scriptures of truth. These are the foundations of true biblical Protestantism. But it is only since the Bill of Rights, 1689, the Act of Settlement, 1701, that the throne of Britain has been reserved for a Protestant head. Those documents lay it down in no uncertain terms. Let me quote from them. It says, Whereas it hath been found by experience that it is inconsistent with the safety and welfare of this Protestant kingdom to be governed by a popish prince or by any king or queen marrying a papist, every person who is or shall be reconciled to or shall have communion with the see or church of Rome or shall marry a papist shall be excluded and be forever incapable to inherit, possess, or enjoy the crown or government of this realm in Ireland. And in every such case, the people of these realms shall be and are hereby released least of their allegiance. What is called the Ascension Declaration and the Coronation Oath underlines that. This has to be taken by the new sovereign either the first time that she meets with Parliament or on her coronation service or his coronation service, whatever comes first. What does it say? It says, I do solemnly and in the presence of God profess, testify, and declare that I am a faithful Protestant and that I will, according to the true intent of the enactments which secure the Protestant succession to the throne of my realm, uphold and maintain the said enactments to the best of my power according to law. 
And as part of that coronation service, remember that the king or queen is also sovereign over Scotland. And there's an oath taken ever since the start of the 18th century to preserve the rights of the Protestant church there. It says, I will inviolably maintain and preserve the settlement of the true Protestant religion with the government, worship, discipline, rights, and privileges of the Church of Scotland. Remember, the Church of Scotland, you go to Scotland, it's not Episcopalian, it's Presbyterianism. And that, uh, of course, covers the covenanters and the battles of that time. And the league, the solemn league that was signed. It says, as established by the laws made there in prosecution of the claim of right, and particularly by an act, and titillated an act for securing the Protestant religion and the Presbyterian church government. It's also interesting to understand that the open Bible has a place of significance in the coronation service. History records that Edward VI, he was known as the boy king. When he entered Westminster Abbey for his coronation, he espied the three swords, three swords that were symbolic of the three kingdoms. But he said, there's one sword yet wanting. And the dignitaries and the nobles, they inquired of him, well, what was that? To which he replied, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He placed great value upon the Scriptures. And he said, that book is the sword of the Spirit and to be preferred before these swords. Without that sword, we are nothing. We can do nothing. We have no power. From that we are what we are this day. He that rules without it is not to be called God's minister or a king. Under that we ought to live, to fight, to govern the people, and to perform all our affairs. From that alone we obtain all power, grace, and virtue, and salvation, and whatsoever we have of divine strength. I think that makes it clear, the value of the Word of God, in summary fashion. And I underline that, men and women, because at every coronation service since, apart from Mary and James II, a Bible has been presented to the sovereign. The Roman Catholic monarchs refused to allow the Bible to have such a prominent place, and then so they declined acceptance of it. And so here is a unique Protestant characteristic of the coronation service in our kingdom with its witness to the value and the place that the Word of God should have and should hold. It was during the reign of Edward VI, which only lasted for six years, that Cromner, Latimer, and Ridley, those bishops and archbishops, those great Protestant reformers got to work they were able to drive home the Reformation in the land. The service in Latin was done away with. The miraculous so-called uh, images, the ceremonies of candle blessing and uh, ash blessing creeping to the crucifix, the doctrine of the Mass, was all done away with, all was, was all disposed with. Just two weeks ago, when I was off for a week, I stood on the very spot in which those three men were martyred for their faith, burned on the stake. There's a little circle still in Broad Street in Oxford. And there's a plaque against that little place in the middle of the road on the wall, opposite, telling you, this is where these men were burned for their faith, 1555 and 1556. 
And round the corner, there's a great memorial to them. We thank God for such men who wouldn't recant the face. These men were given the work to do, and they did the work during the reign of Edward VI. How they came, of course, to be burned to to their death was because Mary Tudor had ascended the throne. Not only did the monarch not accept the open Bible, but she's despised the men of the Bible. Indeed, two other bishops, Hooper and Farrar, lost their lives. Above 300 suffered in those five brief years of the reign of Bloody Mary. When she died, however, Princess Elizabeth received a joyful welcome. Her spirit had not been crushed by the tragedies of her younger days and she declared coming to the throne to, and I quote, to no power whatever is my crown subject save to that of Christ, the King of Kings. Englishmen in particular cannot afford to overlook the fact that Roman Catholic monarch must be submissive to the papacy. This gives solid reason why Britain never dare contemplate having again a Roman Catholic crowned head. The liberty that the Church of Rome claims to have is a false one. The outworking of that she contends for. The Pope is over all kings. The Church may use force to execute its plans. And she tried to do that with Elizabeth's reign. She tried to assassinate her. She sent the Spanish Armada against it. The winds of God blew. Men and women, I trust that you understand by now that I'm not preaching this message against any Roman Catholic. It's against the system. I have time for whoever is is open to hear the message of the gospel. And I will gladly tell it to the Roman Catholic or whatever. But here's what the system believes. And here's what any Roman Catholic monarch has to accept. The Pope is over all kings. You just think of that. The church may use force to execute its plans. Priests have power to direct the people in politics. Education must be under the control of the church. Marriage laws must serve the ends of Rome. Religious houses cannot be fettered by state control. How different to the liberating gospel message. No priest but Christ. No sacrifice but Calvary. No confessional box but the throne of grace. No purgatory but the blood of Christ. No authority but the word of God. Those are the biblical foundations by which we can pray that this kingdom again will see another heaven-sent revival blessing so that true religion is again known in our land and built upon. However, I've got to go on because you've got to notice there in our text the foundations attacked The question is put by the psalmist in these words, if the foundations be destroyed, 
And the sense of the word is, if they're attacked, if they're thrown down or overcome, it's very evident that there is an all-out attack upon the very foundations of our Christian faith. And the devil knows, as anyone ought to, if there's success in the destroying of the foundations, if the attack upon the very core of our faith is fatal, then he has gotten the victory. The people of God have been defeated. Look at the religious world today and what one sees is an eroding way of the truth of God. Take away from the truth, change the truth, and you no longer have the truth. The Scriptures tell us the proverb, buy the truth and sell it not. God's Word is continually under attack. Whether it be by the skeptics who pour scorn upon it and doubt it to be the very word of the very God, or whether it be the Gnostic who doesn't believe that this is the revealed word of God. Aye, but listen to me. There are more subtle attacks been launched by those who profess the Savior and by those who would stand shoulder to shoulder with the Reformed faith. And that attack is also known against the British throne. In May 1961, despite protests, the Queen paid what was called a courtesy visit to the Pope of that time. During the late 70s, there were noises being made for the need for the act of settlement to be changed to enable an heir to the throne to marry a Roman Catholic. In 1982, without any prior announcement, full diplomatic relations with the Vatican were again restored. In April 85, it came to light that plans had been made under the strictest secrecy for the Prince and Princess of Wales to attend a Mass at the Vatican. Now, it didn't happen, but it was planned. And it is widely reported that the Queen intervened to prevent it taking place, and the reports that followed was that there was a rift within the, the, the royal family. A letter was sent to Prince Charles two days after he had an audience with the Pope by a Bible-believing society. That letter reminded him of the 39 articles of the Church of England, in particular the articles that spoke about changing of the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ, that it was something that cannot be proved by Scripture. And also of the blasphemous mass. In a reply from the Prince of Wales, the secretary stated, and I quote, His Royal Highness does not share the sentiments expressed in your letter, but of course respects your views on this important matter. A subsequent letter was sent to Charles again, reminding him that what is set out in the initial letter was in fact the legal and constitutional position. And sadly, a year later, when on a private holiday in Cumbria, they did attend a Mass. And a letter again was sent thereafter, stating that he was compromising the position of the crown. The coronation oath is clear, it wrote, the monarch promises that he or she will uphold the Protestant Reformed religion. The letter concluded with these words, 
I would respectively draw your attention to the fact that if your royal highness were to come to the throne, it would be necessary to comply with those legal safeguards which have been in force for over 325 years. Brings it right back to the act act of settlement, you see. Understand, stand, men and women, the attack is on, piecemeal, bit by bit, subtle in many cases, but with the same aim to undermine the foundations. And what has been stated about the Constitution can likewise be stated about the truth of God's Word in general. Today prevails a message, a gospel, so-called message without repentance. A gospel without the fear or wrath of God been mentioned. A gospel which is bloodless, for no mention is made of the blood of Christ. Such a message, a gospel, is no gospel at all. It is the religion of Cain, for he sought to please God by offering the best of himself. He would have known what the Lord required, but he sought to please God by the works of his hands. And oh, how many tread that same road today. If I try my best, I'll be all right. Dear unsafe friend, not so according to the word of God. For God was to have no respect unto the offering of Cain. It wasn't acceptable. It's only through and by and with the blood of Christ that any soul can be saved. You take away the blood sacrifice and the foundation crumbles. Is it any wonder the devil seeks to attack the blood of the doctrine of the blood of atonement of Christ at Calvary which was purchased there? The attack is also upon the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Charismatic movement have brought that about with their false teaching and emphasis on the Spirit of God. Is it any wonder in the epistle of John, which is directed, it's a general epistle, it's directed to all believers. Is it any wonder that we read in 1 John 4 and 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. These are the foundations of the faith which are under attack. Many seek to replace them by the counterfeit of the devil. Take heed to the words of the Savior as he spoke them in Revelation 2, verse 25. He says, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. He wrote that to a church. That which you have already, hold fast till I come. It leads me to show you finally the action of the faithful. The question is asked, that is asked is rhetorical. In other words, the answer is also given. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's the action of the faithful. If the complete foundations were to give way, what is a faithful child of God to do? I should say that the foundations cannot be fully destroyed because God says in 2 Timothy, it standeth sure. The foundation is Christ. But in a day when the attack is very much upon the faith by the liberals and by the modernists and where the faith has been attacked and undermined by the church of Rome with her subtlety, Rome is now using the same scriptural language as those in the reformed faith. You just listen to them. 
The old priests are using the same terminology. Romanism is subtle, and it is seeking to bring those of other faiths under her wing to a one worldwide church. These are the enemies of God. But what are the faithful to do in such a time? Look at the answer, verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids try the children of men. We're to remember many things. We're to remember where God is. He's in His holy temple. The God of the Bible is a holy God who cannot look upon sin. You remember Isaiah who saw the Lord in his temple. We read there the start of chapter 6 of Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Listen, men and women, kings and queens of this earth will one day die. They'll pass away, but it'll never be said that the king of kings is dead. And in a day of disaster, in a day of great solemnity, Isaiah lifted up his eyes. And he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And you read with me the words of verse 3. He says, One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We're to remember the place where God is. We're to remember the position that he holds. His throne is in heaven. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. His position as the sovereign Lord and King who rules over all is unchallenged. No foe shall be able to usurp that throne. No enemy, no devil shall be able to destroy the foundations of heaven. His is an everlasting kingdom. The Lord is King. Whether or not you accept that, whether or not you, you acknowledge that in your life, you know, it really makes no difference. He is king. He's still king of kings. He's lord of lords. And one day, he's coming back. What he does, he pleases to do. None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? It's the sovereign God who raises up and puts down again. Do you know him? Is he your God? We're to remember also the power that he possesses. You see, verse 4 says, His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. He's God who sees all things. And all is manifest before him. He's able to scrutinize. He's able to examine the children of men. His power is unmistakable. He's able to demonstrate that power against his enemies and the enemies of the gospel. His power is infinite. God is able to destroy the works of the devil. One of the reasons why Christ came, he was manifest in the flesh that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. We must remember when the very core of our faith seems to be undermined that the power of God at the cross has already dealt a death blow to Satan and to his forces. And that day is coming when God shall reign supreme and all the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of our Christ. And the old serpent which is the devil, the deceiver of men, shall be cast into the lake of fire along with his angels. Let me ask you men and women, who are you serving tonight? You're either serving the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the judge of all the earth who shall do right, or else you're still in your sin and you're serving the old devil. 
But in the meantime, ere the Lord comes to set up his kingdom, the believer is called to be faithful and to hold fast that which he has, to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. That faith that some of the kings that I've referenced earlier on was to hold on to as they sat upon the British throne. The believer's action is to be one of remembering and considering one who is greater and more powerful than all the forces of hell. What must we do in the face of such attacks? We must look away to Christ. We must lift our gaze heavenward and gaze upon Him who is the only true and living God. We will only effectively be able to do that if we know Christ more intimately. I've quoted you some of the words of past kings. I want to, in closing, quote you one more. It was said how King George V promised his mother in 1881 he would read a chapter of the Bible every day and that promise he adhered to. They tell of how the king wore out the Bibles that he used because of his diligent use. I'm not suggesting that I'm going into your home this week to look at what way your Bible is. The Lord knows. King George the sixth trod in his father's footsteps in his love for the Scriptures. The words that are spoken when the Bible is presented and was presented to our Queen 70 years ago or 69, if you remember it was, the year later that she was coronated. Those words are worthy of our hearing. It says this, Our gracious Queen, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Blessed is he that readeth. They that hear the words of this book, that keep and do the things contained in it, for these are the words of eternal life, able to make you wise and happy in this world, nay, wise in salvation, and so happy forevermore through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, to whom glory be forevermore. Amen. And I'm preaching to those tonight, I believe, and from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise on the salvation. But what have you done with Christ? Is it just a matter of coming into the house of God of a Sabbath evening, hearing the word going out just the same? It's my prayer that you would remember those words that are spoken to the monarch when she receives the book. God's Word. For the Scriptures reveal the one who is all holy. They reveal one who lived a spotless, sinless life. They reveal the one who came in obedience to the Father's will to ascend Golgotha's brow and there to shed his own blood that he might open up a way to heaven for those who are lost, ungodly, and are the enemies of God. 
For God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. They reveal one who teaches his people by his Spirit. They reveal one who ever lives to make intercession for his people. Let me ask, are you standing by faith in Christ, the only foundation that is sure and steadfast? Are you on that rock, Christ Jesus, tonight, which cannot sink? Or maybe you're still on sinking sand. Dear friend, don't rest until you get to Christ who is able to save you, who is able to keep you from falling, and will present his people faultless before the throne of his Father one day with exceeding joy. And we shall reign with him. That's the assurance the child of God has. Have you got it tonight? Are you standing on the solid rock? It's my prayer that you would know the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The Lord bless his word to each of our hearts tonight.